like for many different reasons. Healthcare historically is like a small data regime. You don't collect millions of mm -hmm. images or billions of text documents. So for me particularly, like an area that I'm very interested in, it's uh, Bayesian deep networks. Any sort of like new methodologies that can be applied into the small data regime so that we can learn better representations or so that we can feed better models with less data, I think that that for me personally is very interesting. Welcome to Data Skeptic. Our mini episodes are gentle introductions to concepts related to artificial intelligence. These short discussions are meant to serve as a primer for the topic. Learn more by reading our show notes at dataskeptic.com. My name is Alex Grigorenko. I'm the lead data scientist on the data products team at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Can you tell me a little bit about what that means, especially with the word product in there? <laughs> what it means is that uh, we're part of a larger team, mm -hmm. uh, a team of designers, engineers, data scientists, and machine learning experts who work together on solving specific problems for clinicians and researchers. The way we solve those problems is by building products that are driven off of machine learning algorithms. We work very closely understanding the needs of our oncologists and researchers, translating those into machine learning solutions, and then testing them out, seeing how that actually fares in the real world. One of the things that we're very interested and excited about is making sure that we're building APIs into, into our work. Um, it kind of helps us design our own software, but it also allows different products to tap into the intelligence that we're producing. Once we're sort of ready and confident that this, this type of stuff works, it would be really interesting to see, well, what if we turn it on, not just for the physicians that, that uh, have access to this, but for patients who are interested in, in being able to search for clinical trials as well. I think it's uh, the disability of an interdisciplinary team with engineering, especially, and the data science working very closely together allows us to very closely in the future to be able to do that. We have been talking about getting into one specific use case, which is this patient and clinical trials matching. Can you give me a high-level summary of what the objectives are? Clinical trials are basically experiments that we do on people when we're trying to understand if one set of interventions or treatments is going to be better for them in the long run than another. And in the oncology world, clinical trials are actually much more important than even generally because they could mean a difference between getting a, a novel treatment or a therapy that hasn't really proven to work very well traditionally. So there is a, this huge desire of making sure that we can not only advance science, but also give as many patients as possible the opportunity to get treated in a novel way. It gives them a better chance of cure and survival. But it's also a very complicated problem. For example, Sloan Kettering is a huge research center. We have over a thousand clinical trials going on at the same time. And an oncologist needs to know about all of those wow. um, in order to be able to say this, is, this one is the appropriate for my patient. So it's a, a huge cognitive overload. And you're hoping that clinical trials are at the top of mind for a particular clinician when there are all sorts of other complexities that go into patient care. So what we want to do is basically make recommendations based on our understanding of the patient history and their medical record in terms of what clinical trials might be appropriate for them. It's a challenging problem from sort of a uh, classification perspective or from a recommendation perspective. But it's also challenging in the fact that clinical trials are not really organized very well in terms of what are the criteria that you're looking for in patients. So they are written on paper or written in PDF documents that are not structured. So a lot of people try to do some natural language processing to derive sort of matching rules to say, all right, we're looking for patients who are female, over 18, what have you, have breast cancer. We tried that a few years ago, and it actually doesn't scale and doesn't work very well because your natural language processing models end up being the bottleneck 
And also trying to look for specific signals in the medical record is also very complicated. The way we decided to go is to go away from the natural language processing and the rules and to say, well, we've been running clinical trials for a very long time, and we actually have more than 40,000 patients historically who have enrolled on them. So why don't we try to learn similarities between patients and make recommendations based on the patients who have enrolled in particular clinical trials and see if the patient that you're trying to make a recommendation for, which, one, which ones of those sort of clusters of patients are they more similar to? So that way you don't really have to think in terms of what are the eligibility criteria that are written on paper. You can learn it from the data that you already have, and you can bypass this whole idea of complicated rules. Mm -hmm. So that's been very promising. We're working very hard to roll it out in the next couple of weeks. So we've kind of gone from this research question, is this even possible, to actually trying to test it in the real world. So when I think of uh, what little I know about clinical research, just sort of very stats 101 textbook stuff, I'm cognizant of the fact that uh, we want to have something like a random sample so we don't accidentally bias it. You know, if you only accept women, perhaps women's bodies are somehow different than men's, and, and that can skew the results. Although if it works for women, then great, we have a female treatment. So I guess there's some features like that you have to take into account for. But how do you go about making sure you haven't introduced a bias in the process? A lot of the systems that we're building are not standalone systems. So there's still an oncologist in the loop who is thinking about, is this appropriate for a particular patient? And there's still a research team that has designed the clinical trial who says, all right, you're bringing me all of this, these patients, they all look the same. We're not going to get the right study out of this. So what we're trying to do is basically solve part of this problem, but there's still a lot of fail-safes in this process to say, yeah, you're making great recommendations, but maybe this is not the types of people that we want to be including in this trial. In terms of the clustering you were describing, I imagine there are certain variables you know that are irrelevant, like maybe if they're left or right-handed, this presumably has no impact on cancer, but if what blood type they have, maybe it does. I don't really know. It seems plausible. How do you know what you want to cluster on to find those similarities? Yeah, so this is where kind of our participation at NIPS and the interest that we have here is coming into play, there's this whole area of uh, metric learning, supervised metric learning. So you could say you define what it is that uh, you think similar means. And for us, the similar means they enrolled in the same clinical trial in the past. So that means that in a particular set of ways, they are similar to one another. Once you've defined that outcome, you have the machine actually learn what are the parts of the record that matter. We kind of a priori know that things like type of cancer, what mutation they have, what treatments they might have gotten matter. But we also want to learn that specifically for specific trials, and uh, we don't want to hard code any of that. So by sort of flipping this problem is by saying similar dissimilar and setting up the objective to train for that is how you get around a lot of these issues where you have to think very carefully about what features will go into this. When it comes to that similarity, like you said, you have, uh, I think, a thousand clinical trials going on at some time. In some sense, that means it's like a competition. If I'm running one of those trials, I, I want patients, uh, as do 999 other people. How do you balance uh, those needs? There's a couple of components there. So those uh, competitions, there's kind of, again, policy and sort of uh, physicians knowing which trials are going to be more impactful than others. And mm. again, this is supposed to be sort of your first level decision support. We're not going to be resolving those political issues mm -hmm. um, around it or even scientific issues right, right. around it. Uh, so if we just 
make that process a little bit more smooth. That's kind of the attempt at it. Gotcha. So you described how this is a, an active and running system you guys are leveraging. I'd love to hear about kind of the end-to-end process, about how a patient arrives. Uh, I don't know if they present themselves as a, willing to be in a clinical trial. What's their story and how do they flow through the system? Yeah, so typically speaking, the, the patient is going to come to Sloan Kettering and a lot of the times they're going to come with a fairly complex case. That's the reason why they're going to a research center. And is it complexity in terms of their disease is rare or has complication? Be, it could be that their disease is rare or they've had a number of treatments and they haven't worked. Ah. So now they're looking for something else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is really where clinical trials come in. And they're going to have all of this recorded in their medical record, kind of all over the place, in clinical notes, in structured data, in lab values, images, what have you. Then they're going to have a conversation with their treating clinician. And the treating clinician is going to say, here's your standard of care therapies, and here's a potential clinical trial for you, or a potential number of clinical trials that you might be eligible for. Would you be willing to participate in that? And they're going to explain all of the dangers that are associated with, but also all of the positives that are associated with it. So it's a really kind of shared decision-making process. We want to make sure that the physician doesn't forget about anything in terms of what's uh, available in terms of clinical trial when they're having that conversation. But that conversation will always need to happen. There are a lot of papers at NIPS this um, session about interpretability of models. Do the oncologists need something more than just a, a class label? There's a couple of things, actually. We're very careful about thinking, how does this work in a clinical workflow? So we have a product that actually allows you to see the entire electronic medical record in a very straightforward way. And you click and click around it, and patient matching, our algorithm, is only a very small part of it. So a physician would click and, say, get that list of recommendations, but they can see side by side also what does the My Patient record look like. So they can very carefully and quickly evaluate what are the eligibility criteria for this trial, again, written on paper, and Right here, I can see the, all of the pertinent information. So it kind of speeds up their process. In terms of understanding why the recommendation is being made, we're kind of thinking in terms of how to introduce that. We certainly have ways to do it when we're troubleshooting these models and seeing we really want to make sure that we're making recommendations for the right reasons. And uh, we very carefully introspect features. We want to make sure that the top 20, top 100 make a lot of sense. How we're going to present that to busy oncologists is going to be kind of the next set of challenges. Because if your recommendations are good enough, it may be just enough that they they say, all right, you know what, this makes sense. But if they're not, then maybe they want to dig into what's Mm -hmm. happening. This is kind of uh, a very exciting part where you go from your kind of lab setting, so to speak, research setting, into real world and seeing how these conversations are going to happen with oncologists. And I think the best way to do that is to put something in front of them find uh, some partners that understand how machine learning works and that it gets better through kind of conversations and not just on its own, but with the people who are making the algorithms. And I think um, see how how that's going to work out. So I'm I'm really excited to hear what oncologists actually think and what they need. So I think we're really trying to make sure that we lower that cognitive overhead for physicians first, but then I Mm -hmm. think hopefully it'll snowball into patients knowing that if they come into a Sloan Kettering or any institution that is using machine learning to understand the landscape of the disease and kind of the treatments that are available, they can feel confident that whatever is being offered to them is not kind of uh, subject to whether their doctor got a good night's sleep yesterday. Mm -hmm. This information and data-driven part of it is, is hopefully going to make it better and better for patients in terms of feeling confident that they're getting the best care out there.
The Mendoza College of Business is a comprehensive business school at the University of Notre Dame. They offer a Master's of Science in Business Analytics degree that might be a good fit for you. It's a 12-month program in their Michigan Avenue Chicago campus. Classes meet alternating Fridays and Saturdays, 9 to 6, and there are three three-day intensive sessions on Notre Dame's historic campus. Do you have a good grasp of quantitative topics, methods, and tools? But do you lack the experience and the know-how to apply them to business? Maybe the classroom interactions with award-winning faculty can help advance your career. See if this program is right for you by visiting mendoza.nd.edu slash dataskeptic. Visit that link and your application fee will be waived. mendoza.nd.edu slash dataskeptic. Let's do a listener question before we get into the second half of the interview. Ilaria went to dataskeptic.com, clicked Contact Us, and left a great question on our listener voicemail system. This runs inside your browser with nothing to install. If you've got a great question, please head over to dataskeptic.com and ask us there. Successful applications of AI in international and global scale environmental problems like climate change and crop losses remain still confined to academic cases. But we cannot wait anymore. We must act now. As for every global issue, the question is, who's going to pay for this? Building databases and machine learning algorithms comes at a cost. And it's a big cost in this case. My question is, how can governments, NGOs, universities, and software companies work together to build an AI platform for tackling global environmental problems? Thank you. So how can governments, NGOs, universities, and business build an AI platform for tackling global problems? I'm not sure I can solve it in under a minute, but here goes. When it comes to the types of problems governments and NGOs take on, in my observation, the challenges data scientists are going to face is the data or the lack thereof. Sure, maybe the FDA is working on leveraging computer vision in some novel food inspection task. But studying things like homelessness or crop loss, these are problems that typically have a lot of dark data. If you have the absence of data or low-quality data, it's a non-starter for many data science and AI projects. Now, sometimes when one thinks they have no data, maybe there's the opportunity to be especially clever. Crops, for example, are commonly seen by satellite imagery. If you can find out who's taking photos from satellites and get access to that data, you might have something useful to work with. You know, several times a year, I see very well-intentioned projects written up about applying data science to some worthwhile humanitarian effort. Some of these are very good, but others are not. Broadly speaking, I find efforts invested in these areas seem to be most fruitful when they focus on data collection over modeling. The types of models one produces when you carelessly run machine learning against a data set are often overfit or, in these sorts of cases, largely underdetermined. The problem, for me personally, is I'm not always sure whether these efforts make a measurable impact or not. So I think rather than doing machine learning modeling and AI applications, Efforts invested in these areas seem to be most fruitful when the focus is on data collection over modeling, specifically for NGOs and governmental organizations, groups that typically don't have internal expertise in AI, but they do have internal expertise on the things that they manage, and they're probably the best in the world for tracking them. These things being true, my recommendation for how disparate groups can work together to leverage AI is threefold. First, when the governments and NGOs choose to invest, I think they should invest in the fundamentals, data collection and tracking. When organizations pursue grants, 
I believe organizations that issue grants will see the greatest return on their investment when they're given to projects aimed at data collection and specifically around creating open data. Which leads me to my second of three points. Governments, NGOs, and universities should push hard for open data. Now, of course, privacy is very critical and important. And indeed, this is an important criticism. Before opening up any data set, it should be very carefully considered what could be the negative consequences. But when you think about that question for a long time, and the worst case scenario you can think of is not really that bad, then we can't be terrified of the unknown unknowns. Open data is like crowdsourcing your AI efforts. You never know who will show up and work with it. Finally, the last recommendation I have, find a way to get your technology and your thought leadership for free. Take that crops example. If an established organization, NGO, government, whatever, wants to help find ways to assist farmers, we know satellite imagery will help. How do we find out who has that data? And how do we approach them and convince them that they should give it to the program, or at a deep discount, or whatever the case may be? A distinguishing factor of companies that are growing very quickly in this day and age are those that have a distinct data asset, access to information someone else doesn't have. Now, of course, they want to protect their data asset. I'm sure Starbucks has some interesting databases that they're not interested in sharing with the coffee bean. But if something about their tracking could be helpful to a sociologist, let's say, a few phone calls and a few follow-ups might just get you the data you need. Similarly, as best I know, all the major cloud computing platforms have departments that focus on charitable giving, ways to contribute those services to people at little or no cost. So in conclusion, I think the step to building that AI platform that forward-thinking Ilari is dreaming about here... I think it begins at the base. Let those organizations closest to the data collect it and open it. And then let the technologists, researchers, and AI people, you know, find a way to lure them to come look at the data. Thanks again, Ilaria, for the great question. If you've got something on your mind you think we should address, please head over to dataskeptic.com and click on Contact Us. Scroll down just a little bit and you'll see where you can record inside your browser. My name is Iker Huerga. I'm Director of Engineering and Applied Machine Learning at, at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. So tell me a little bit about the Cancer Center to begin with. The mission statement is basically to transform cancer into a chronic disease that can be managed and that can, people can, can live with it for many, many, many years instead of like dying from it. In terms of the center itself, we have like more than 1,000 oncologists on a yearly basis, we receive around 600,000 visits from different patients. We perform like 23,000 surgical procedures. And we collect a huge amount of information out of all these data points. Overall, we have data for around like 1.5 million patients from three key areas of what we call the patient journey, which is diagnosis, treatments, and outcomes. So 1.5 million patients is a great data set to get started with. When I think of a lot of medical applications, obviously machine learning is starting to play a huge role in that, but it wasn't not too long ago in the past. Can you tell me about how the center started to bring machine learning into the fold? In order to answer the question, you, you need to understand where are we coming from. Mm -hmm. Historically, how you know, data analysis have worked in these type of settings, like uh, research institutions like ours. So basically, like a domain expert, like an oncologist would have a hypothesis to test. And this person would work with biostatistician or epidemiologist. And these biostatisticians would gather kind of like information that they need to test this hypothesis. Typically, this would be in the order of, you know, like a few thousand samples of like high quality data. Yeah, everything is structured, like real values. And they would use kind of like traditional uh, and well understood like statistical methods 
uh, to validate this hypothesis, like basically determining whether the underlying probability distribution of the samples is due to random variations or if there is actually a correlation. You know, like what happened or the reason why we decided to kind of like get into machine learning a few years back was because the institution wanted to change two of these kind of like components. On the first hand, the thought process was like, huh, what if we could learn from all the data set that we've aggregated throughout the years, like regardless of size, study, whether the information is structured as in a lab test or whether it's unstructured, like in a clinical note written by a physician. When you start thinking about this problem and in this new setting, like the traditional methods wouldn't work. So we decided to start borrowing new methodologies from the machine learning community. And we decided to kind of like combine them with the traditional statistical methods that we have been using for, for many, many years. So that's kind of like how the, the interest of the, of the center into machine learning started. So we've talked about oncologists coming up with hypotheses and we want to test these in some way with machine learning. Can you get into some of the specifics? How does an oncologist express a hypothesis in a way that's useful to you? And then how do, what are we trying to train on when we build a deep network to solve it? Two examples, kind of like projects that we've been working on that kind of like the requirement or the need has been expressed by the oncologist first. And there are like many examples like this. For instance, deep pain thrombosis is a very severe complication after surgery that is not very well understood why, but, you know, the occurrence is much higher in the cancer population. For cancer patients that they just got surgery, so it's one of the worst complications that can happen. It's basically a blood clot that can happen in the lower veins of the body and can very quickly move all the way up to the lungs and can kill you in a matter of a few hours. So the problem for the institution was like, kind of like the hypothesis was like, would there be a way by which you could tell me which patients would be at risk mm. of developing DBT, like deep vein thrombosis, in the next 24 hours, in the next 48 hours? So we started working with a couple of doctors. Well, a couple of doctors came to us with this hypothesis we usually have like several meetings with them to understand what the need is, how would they use this type of model like uh, operationally. We spend like quite a bit of time actually understanding what's in their minds. How do they think about that process? Because they could do it. Like, you know, it, you would give them like thousands of charts and they would read through them. They would be able like to do a very decent job at saying like which patients are at risk versus which ones aren't. The problem is that they cannot do that, you know, like uh, you have to keep in mind that these oncologists are highly busy. Mm -hmm. It's a high responsibility profession and they cannot dedicate like, you know, like their precious time doing this. So, yes, I think DBT is one, one good example of one of, of these problems we, we tackle with them. Do the oncologists come to you and say, here are all your features, go, you know, come up with a model or what are the steps to actually yeah, implementing this? That's, that's a very interesting question. That's tricky. One of the requirements, so to speak, that we impose in these oncologies is that they cannot come with a blank slate and say, hey, I want you to do this or I want you to help me to do this. Uh, we usually ask them to come up with the initial data set that they manually label. You know, they have an incentive to do that. We are at the cutting edge of cancer research. So for some of these oncologists, those are questions that have been in the, in the cancer community for a long time that nobody has been able to answer. Their incentive is like if we are able to help them and they come up with this solution, 
they are going to have a very impactful publication out of that. Mm -hmm. So that's the main reason why, you know, they decide to kind of like, you know, create this original data set for us. Most of the time, that's not enough. You know, we're talking about like maybe they manually classify like 100 samples, mm -hmm. like 200 samples. If we're lucky, 600 samples. So we usually work with them to expand this data set in a semi-supervised way in which, you know, we meet with them and we ask them, which are the, you know, like the main features that made them classify one patient as one or as zero. We try to translate that into a model most of the times or even queries. We end up with a candidate data set of patients that we think through that model that we came up with might be zeros or ones. It's an iterative process with the clinician until we, with some certainty, can claim that at least at the very beginning identify the patient population we are doing like a very good job let's say you know we can get to i know 80 percent accuracy or very good precision very good recall and they are happy with it mm -hmm. and then we end up with the with the data set that we will do like the proper modeling for prediction i can see even if your models weren't as good as the doctors it's still valuable because it's automated but i'm also hearing about how things keep advancing and are approaching or sometimes exceeding the human expert level what do you guys see in the models you build? I would say that, at least in my personal opinion, I think uh, this regime is different. I don't think, at the personal level, I don't think that machine learning algorithms at the level of the domain expert. Mm -hmm. I think they can be used as a support tool, something that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they can, it can do like a decent job at a certain point in time. Or maybe the domain experts can use as, uh, you know, sometimes they make mistakes as well. Or there are things that they forget. Or there are things that, you know, they're busy and, you know, they don't pay as much attention as they should. So some of these models operate as backups sometimes. So I don't think it's, you know, these models are going to replace oncologists anytime soon. <laughs> All right. So there's... Um some stereotypes. I'm certainly there are multidisciplinary people, but yeah. in general, I would think an oncologist does not know machine learning, and a machine learning expert does not know oncology, yeah. um, which is why we collaborate, right? We have yeah. to bring experts together. But then there becomes this challenge to get going. Um, that how do we know uh, you found the right data set? For example, I wear a fitness tracker, so I have a time series of my heartbeats. If I gave you that information, I doubt if it would be very helpful, really. I, I don't know how much predictive power we'd have in just the heartbeat from this crude, you know, retail device. So are, perhaps there are things that need to be measured that aren't measured, or, um, you know, how do you end up finding patient records or collecting data that gets you the robust features that allows you to make those predictions? You know, I'm going to go back to the iterative process with the oncologists. We always lean on them, like in the sense that, you know, I'm, as you said, I'm not an, oncolo an oncologist, so for me, you know, it's like almost impossible to come up with the right features that, with the right predictors for the vein thrombosis, for instance. So I will always lean on the on the domain expert in order to do that. As far as the, you know, like finding out the right data set to to actually make the right prediction, uh, that's that's almost impossible, I would say. Like, you know, I would say that the goal is to, to find a data set that is good enough. Mm -hmm. When we share the results of our approaches with our oncologists, they are happy with it. They tell me that what they see is what they should see, that they are comfortable with what they are seeing. Typically, it's enough. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't question that. So you guys have recently sponsored uh, an interesting Kaggle competition. Can you tell me a little bit about it? We sent that submission, like NIPS, for the first time, I believe. So they 
open up a request for competitions like probably like six months ago. We sent a submission around classifying like clinically actionable genetic mutations. It got accepted, so we decided to kind of like run that competition in Kaggle. If I were a participant and I went and downloaded that data set, what was I getting and what, are my, what was my objective function? So if we think about like the three, like high level, like the three different steps of, of gene sequencing, the first step, there is like a doctor, like a specialist who is kind of like a, performing a procedure, like sometimes like a needle biopsy to get a tissue sample. So this sample is being sent to a, it's been sent to a sequencer, like an Illumina machine that produces a huge amount of information. So this data needs to be analyzed. So the problem we were trying to address is in a very specific part of the, of the analysis, which is called interpretation, which is basically the part in which the human expert gets, like literally gets all the data that comes out of the sequencer, and he has to filter it out and come up with a list of genetic mutations that can be used to treat that patient to kind of like stop a tumor growth. In the domain, uh, these are called like uh, actionable mutations because the doctors can act on them. And believe it or not, the way this is being done currently, uh, it's like uh, this human expert, the way they do it, it's like they identify uh, candidate mutations. So with these, they go to the literature and they start like making manual searches. This human being, this human expert would go there, would go to PubMed or any of these kind of like uh, literature searchers or search engines. We'll start making searches, identify articles that might contain evidence regarding this mutation. This person would have to read all these articles, and eventually he will determine whether or not there is enough evidence that associates this particular mutation with tumor growth in melanoma, for instance. This is a very labor-intensive process, mm -hmm. you know? It's, like a, it's a completely manual, it requires like a lot of work, a lot of people. At MSK, at, at Sloan Kettering, so like three years ago, we created a precision oncology knowledge base called OncoKB. So we have like a group of 15 people who are doing this manual work day after day. They read the literature, they take annotations, and, and in three years, they've been able to annotate like around like 3,000 different mutations. But, you know, like this approach doesn't scale. Mm -hmm. like if you think about the number of mutations in the, in the human genome, I think it's in the order of 3 million. And new mutations that might be impactful for cancer come out every month. And the information that we annotated today, it might get outdated one week from now, one month from now, one year from now. It's really complex to kind of like, you know, when you think about what the, the current setting is, it's very difficult to scale. So what we decided to do, and it's one of the reasons why we, as MSK, we, we, we have an active role, or we try to have an active role in the machine learning community. We were seeking for help in the machine learning community, like basically saying, hey, could you help us solving one of the main challenges that we currently have in cancer research, mm -hmm. which is like, you know, like actually classifying whether this mutation is driver versus a passenger, whether it matters for this particular tumor. So we decided to take this data set that the, our human experts created, and we split it up like in two different files. So on the one hand, we had like the genetic mutations and the amino acid changes. On the other hand, my team collected all the different, like, all the text from all the evidence that the human being, that the domain expert would use to make this, this determination. Mm. And we manually collected all the different captions from the, from the images, like the text from the articles, the appendix, everything, you know? We wanted to give it the best shot. And at least give the machine the same, the same information that the human expert would use or would have. 
And the goal was to, you know, like for participants to take these two data points, like the genetic mutation and the evidence, as inputs for their models. And it was a classification problem in which, you know, like the output, they basically would have to tell us, like the particular mutation in which of the nine classes that we use for our classification, this particular mutation belongs to. So it sounds like what they get is more or less unstructured natural language. I mean, you maybe mm -hmm. labeled this as a caption, this is text and things along those lines, but... Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of the approaches people took, were there a lot of steps then to do feature engineering? Yeah, I mean, like, you have to keep in mind that participants had two problems, you mm -hmm. know, when it comes to particularly to this kind of, like, you know, more, I would say, modern uh, deep learning methods. So, A, the data set was small. So, so as I was saying, like, uh, we have, like, 3,000 samples. Mm -hmm. and, and for each of these samples, you have, like, a highly dimensional space there were like 10,000 or 20,000 different words that could be utilized to make this particular classification. They obviously had to fight with overfitting. They ob obviously had to fight with like a very small or tiny data set. Mm -hmm. In that regime, these kind of like deep neural nets, they didn't work like very well. So most of the participants, they did a lot of feature engineering, like based on domain knowledge. Uh, some of them were kind of like, you know, like just parsing the results from each of the evidences, coming up with like different ways to extract features at the sentence level, at the paragraph level, features around a gene, features around a particular mutation. And then they would use ensembles to kind of like combine all these. Interestingly, kind of like both of the two top solutions, they were using XGBoost, which is a very well-known mm -hmm. boosting algorithm to kind of like combine all the features that they had engineered. But again, it's like, if you think about it, that's probably what the expert is doing anyways. Like there are like, you know, like particular things that, that he or she focus on because she knows about it. Mm -hmm. And it's not that they are reading like a thousand or 10,000 papers to make a determination. It's like they, they look for very specific things. Mm -hmm. So I think that if you encode that into your models, you're probably actually doing what you are supposed to be doing. What were your expectations going into the competition for how well participants would do? We didn't know what was going to happen. Like, you know, like when we were discussing about what success would mean for us, uh, we were saying like, well, maybe, you know, like a hundred people participating. Maybe we can use one or two approaches. Maybe, mm -hmm. you know, we learn from it. So it turns out that more than 1,300 people end up, ended up like participating in the competition. We manually reviewed like probably like 25 or 30 different approaches of which I would say like six to 10 are very encouraging, are things that we could actually use that could you know, certainly reduce the amount of time that it takes for our domain experts to do this type of job. Of course, uh, you know, there's a big step, there's a big gap between you know, what works on paper, so to speak, and mm -hmm. what, what works in production. Sure. And that's something that we will work on next, but, but I'm hopeful. So you said there were nine different classes and only 3,000 examples. This is certainly a challenging problem. Mm -hmm. How do you go about measuring that? Is it typical accuracy or how do you look at the evaluating what's a good solution? Yeah, I think we were using like log loss as the, as the metric. Mm -hmm. You know, like kind of like the classes were highly unbalanced. And not only that, but you know, like uh, there is, I mean, it is well documented in the clinical literature that even if you would have like two domain experts trying to classify the same mutation with the same evidence, you have a high probability of them not agreeing. <laughs> like one saying this is likely pathogenic and the other one saying this is pathogenic. 
It's actually a very interesting paper from from Nijam, from the New England Journal of Medicine, like one or two two years back, where they actually look at the easiest variations to classify, which were kind of like BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations for breast cancer. It's a breast cancer gene, like everybody knows about it. There are genetic tests all over the place for people to kind of like identify these mutations. They put together a group of like five or ten people, like, you know, like domain experts from NIH, they took, I think, it's like uh, five patients and they look into the genetic profiles and they were trying to see if they would agree on what would be the treatment recommendation based on their mutations. Turns out they couldn't. I guess my point is like there are like so many factors that you have to take into account in order to quantify whether or not these results are good or good enough. But I don't think it's just a matter of picking up the right metric. You had mentioned uh, one critical step to this whole process of taking maybe some of the insights from the, if there were, I think you said six kind of unique original ideas that emerged. How do you take those from uh, a nice demonstration into helping patients? Well, that's actually what our team does. Just to give you some background, uh, our group is called like a data production engineering. We are a group where machine learners, data scientists, engineers, and even designers are working together. And the ultimate goal is to, is to build products. So it's like, it's not just to do cool research around machine learning. Mm-hmm. It's to actually apply this cool research to solve real problems. So for us, success is actually translating this into a real product that an oncologist can use, and it's impacting real patients. You know, at the very beginning, we would have like some sort of like a research phase where we are testing different ideas. We will work very closely with our oncologists to, you know, validate these ideas. And once we get that validation and we make sure that that can tra- translate into a real product, we are an agile shop. It's like we would kind of like plan for it. We would have user stories. Mm-hmm. We would have like a product release, the whole nine yards. Have you had any learnings in that process? You know, how often do you release a new model or uh, queue an update when you found something interesting? You know, how do you maintain services like that? I mean, we actually have the ability for, for certain things that we are actually, re- you know, like, uh, like we are releasing a new product, for instance, in, on December 20th. Mm-hmm. And we have a mechanism by which we can hot swap models in production. Like meaning that, you know, we can test a new model with the same data set in QA, development, staging. Once we validate it and we are comfortable with the results, we could literally kind of like flip a switch in production and just deploy this new model. Ah, so very neat. We, we counter for that. Like, in the, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a learning, it's a continuous learning experience, so, you know. Absolutely. Well, I think it's a really awesome place to be, not only a good area to be applying machine learning, of course, which sort of tends to be my bias and interest, but uh, a lot more than just getting people to click ads here. So I, uh, I think great work you guys are up to. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Data Skeptic is a listener-supported program. To support the show, visit dataskeptic.com and click on the membership tab.